Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. For my second segment, I'll be talking with Mary Sue Yoon, College Coach veteran and former admission officer at Barnard College about SAT subject tests. She'll be answering the most important questions, what are they, and do I need to take them? For my f- third segment, Lori Peltier, long-term college long-time college coach finance consultant and former senior financial aid officer at Becker and Anna Marie Colleges will be here to discuss how financial aid works at the Ivies. Yes, the Ivies are expensive, but did you know that some some families can qualify for very generous aid packages? So stick around to find out more. But before we move on to those segments, I hope you're all enjoying the summer. Remember that amongst your internships, summer jobs, and summer homework, If you're a rising high school senior, you definitely want to be working on your college admission essay. The common application is not available, um, or I should say it's not going to be fully updated until August 1st, but the essay topics are already available, so there is no reason to wait. And summer is really a great time to get some work done on those applications. Um, If some of my listeners have already finished high school, you probably have some homework too. And that'll be picking out your classes for the fall. So for my first segment, Joy Biscornet, former admission officer at Colleges as Diverse at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and Boston College, and a brand new member of the College Coach team, we're super excited to have her with us, will be joining me to give advice on this topic. There's a lot to think about, so be sure to join us. Welcome, Joy. Hi, Sally. Hi, how are you today? I'm happy to be here. I'm great. great. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. All right. So let's just let's go ahead and just sort of dive right in. If a student is, you know, I, what I'm kind of thinking about right now is a student who's at home, you know, they've received a huge packet of information from the college where they're planning on attending. Um, and one of the big parts of that packet is classes. You know, what are they going to take in the fall? What are they thinking about taking? So what should they be thinking about first? They should be thinking about reading through all of the information that has been sent to them in that big packet because the colleges wouldn't send it if it wasn't important for them to prepare for that next step and moving on to their college education. So read through everything and start thinking about what's important to you in terms of taking classes. That will really help students prepare for a new way of taking classes in terms of uh, thinking about schedule, not going to the same class every day for the same, at the same time, um, much like they do in high school, but starting to think about taking classes that are in their major, classes that might satisfy either core or general education requirements, and also what, S, uh, what electives they might want to take to add and build out uh, their um, college experience. Mm-hmm. I want to highlight one of the things you said, which is reading through all this information. I think um, high school students, they've been so used to getting those kind of recruitment emails or packets from colleges that they're used to scanning things. But I want to just really point out everything that comes to your home now matters. You have to read it. Would you agree with that from your experience? I would, most definitely. And that does include emails that are coming to uh, the student from the college because they might be sending information through the mail, but many of them will be communicating through email. It's the easiest way for colleges to get the information out to incoming students. So... Students should be sure that when they're um, giving the colleges that they're attending all of their information, that they know whether emails could come to their personal email account or if they've been given a university email address when 
emails may start arriving in that inbox. And it's so important to check email on a regular basis. I know when in with the use of text and, and social media platforms, email can be forgotten about, but it really is something that needs to be added to the daily routine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. And then I want to pick up on something else that you talked about, which is the core or general education classes and the electives. So why don't you talk a little bit more about that, like how a student needs to be thinking about how their coursework is going to be divided up. When you and I were talking about this um, a few days ago, you talked about the major. I think everybody knows about the major requirements, but there's other requirements too. There's gen ed, there's general education or core and elective. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, Most students, as they're going through the admission process and then once they've chosen where they're going to enroll, the the question that they get most often is, well, what are you going to major in? And that is, is always the focus of the academic conversation. But for most students, um, their academic course load is going to be broken into three parts. We can think of it about, of about a third of the classes that they'll take over their four-year experience will be dedicated to the major, and those are all the classes that are related to their specific academic focus where they're going to be taking a deep dive. There are also about a third of the courses that'll be um, fulfilled by either core requirements or general education requirements, depending on how the college refers to them. And these are courses that are required of all students to make sure that they get that strong foundation to support their major field of study. Some may be specific classes that every student takes to have a common experience at that particular college. Some might be more general in saying there is a writing requirement for all students, but the college doesn't necessarily dictate the one class that all students will take. Mm-hmm. And then a yeah. third of the the third of the classes will usually be electives, and those are courses that students can choose from. They might use these classes to pursue a second major or a minor. They might use these classes to take particular courses within um, a subject area that interests them, but they don't necessarily want to take a deep dive. Or they may just be really fun classes that sound interesting and they want to take as a one-off just to um, kind of make their their college experience all that it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of these things, I think what's important to note is that all of these things need to be balanced between. And traditionally, I think students really spend the first couple of years really taking care of their general education courses. So like what would a typical schedule do you think look like? Like let's let's use a couple different examples. Let's start with you know, an English major, like what might their first year, first semester schedule look like? Sure. For someone who's pursuing the, the uh, a course within the humanities like English, that student in the first year might have a lot of flexibility in terms of looking at their core requirements to see if there are, um, if there is an English requirement in terms of literature or writing. They might also have to take a math or a science class, surprisingly, even if they're not going to major in those subjects because, again, the college wants to ensure that they have a broad-based education. Um, And then they might start to think about taking a second English class that can count towards their major. Then they might just take a a class that sounds fun, maybe if they've studied uh, foreign language in high school and they'd like to continue their language pursuit, that might count as an elective, or you might take something like ballroom dancing as an elective. There is a wealth of coursework that's available to students, and the best way for them to figure out their courses and start to see what might interest them is the course catalog. And that's something that students should definitely read. 
the course catalog used to come in the mail as part of registration or orientation material, but since those are so thick because they have so much information in them, they list every course that's offered at the college, most course catalogs have now gone online. So students can get onto um, their, the college website for where they will be an enrolling freshman and really dig into that course catalog. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I with, agree. I think with, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. With the course catalog, students can get a sense of what courses are required for their major, what particular courses or specific courses or um, areas of study, so subjects are, requi- are required for the core curriculum or gen ed requirements, and also see what electives are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the course catalog is a great place to look. What are some other potential resources that students might access, um, you know, whether, whether they're at home or maybe even once they get to campus and they're trying to choose their courses? Sure. Um, when they get to campus, a great resource is their academic advisor. Um, some smaller colleges might have an individual already assigned to a student in terms of being their academic advisor. It might be a professor in the department where the student thinks they might end up choosing a major. It might be an entire advising team that is dedicated just to advising students and don't really have any other responsibilities in terms of teaching classes, um, so they can really focus on students. Sometimes you might have an academic advisor who's not related to a field of study that you're thinking about at all, but that individual can be a really great resource in looking at taking classes that you might not be thinking about, because if you are that English major, maybe your faculty advisor for your freshman year is a a physics professor, and that individual can talk to you about courses in the sciences should you have a general education requirement in the sciences. They can provide a lot of advice. Mm -hmm. Before, um, Before or while the student is on campus, there also can be some online resources. Some colleges will actually post the course evaluations that are completed by current students online, particularly to their student portal. So they are password and username protected so that general public can't just go online and and read the, the comments that previous students have made. But this gives um, upcoming students who are thinking about taking a class a sense of what they can expect from a fellow student perspective. And that's sometimes where you get the most honest information in terms of what the professor's teaching style is like, what they can expect in terms of workload, um, and having advice from a fellow student who's gone through the class already is, is so helpful. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, if uh, I mean, I, it sounds like a great resource, but I would imagine you should take some of the comments with a grain of salt. I mean, you might get an evaluation from a student who was pretty cranky, but it's a teacher who overall is is well liked. So I always like to kind of throw that in there. Most definitely. It's like when you're trying to find a new restaurant to go to and you look at Yelp reviews. And some of them are five stars, and then other uh, others of them are one star. You really need to look at the details and consider all perspectives rather than just going with the the first one that you read and really consider where the student might be coming from. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's kind of switch tack. I wonder, I mean, we talked about a possible English major, and I think a lot of what you talked about was really relevant um, for all majors, right? Like kind of how you spread things out. What about the student who's undecided? Does that change anything? Um, what do you, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? So for the student who's undecided, I, I first want to say, don't worry, you will graduate with a degree. For most <laughs> students who come in undecided, and, and when I say most, 
I would say about 70% of uh, freshmen, college freshmen, come in undecided. Not because they are completely without any idea of what they want to study, but because they haven't had the opportunity to have such a such a wealth of choices when it comes to courses. You know, when I was in high school, I, I couldn't take a molecular biology course. It wasn't offered at my high school. I, I wasn't really even sure if I knew what molecular biology was. So it can be a little bit daunting for a student to say, I've taken the same five subjects for four years of high school, I don't know what else is out there. So being undecided can really be a great asset to a student because they can come in with a with an open mind. So for that student who is undecided, it I would suggest that they focus more on their core courses or general education requirements to complete their first year, really get those um, underway so that as they move through their four years, they, they can focus more on their major requirements once they know what they are. With that said, regardless of what a student's major is, I would suggest, if possible, taking a college writing course. That is one of the best things a student can do in order to prepare themselves for the writing that's ahead in pretty much all of their courses. Um, I was an engineer as an undergrad, and I went in thinking, I'll never have to write a paper. I'll never have to really hone my writing skills, and I couldn't have been more wrong. So that push that I was given to take a college writing course in my freshman year made all the difference. And some mm-hmm. students might think that taking a college writing course or getting that, their core requirements done in the beginning will actually extend the time that they have to be um, at university, but that's usually not the case at all because when I talked about the three different buckets that we can put classes into in terms of core, major, and electives, For many students, they'll find that they can kill two birds with one stone, that a course that they're taking as a core requirement may actually fill a major requirement. So even though that they they don't necessarily know exactly what they want to study, they're not wasting any time by focusing on their gen ed requirements or their their core curriculum. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was in college, um, there were multiple of my requirements for my major actually did cross over to core requirements. So I still uh-huh. had plenty of electives, which was nice. Yeah. Um, all right, great. So I think it's interesting what you said, too, that being undecided can be kind of a gift because they're, they, they're coming in open-minded. I mean, actually, a pretty large percentage of students... Um, change their major. I think what what did we when we were talking earlier, you said something about your college roommate. What kinds of majors did she cycle through? Yeah, my college roommate freshman year, um, I think she may have had four or five majors. Um, she started out as um, an an English major, so it was funny that you had mentioned that. And then she took uh, she had taken a psychology course that she found super interesting. So then she decided to be a psychology major. She didn't like that. At some point, she was a math major. And by the time we graduated, she had settled on accounting. <laughs> so it, it was, she kind of ran through the social sciences and the humanities. Um, so, but it, she learned a lot about herself where she found um, her academic strengths, but also where she was most happy in in terms of studying. She really liked accounting, and and it just took her a while to find it because she had never taken any accounting classes in high school, and there weren't any accountants or people who had studied accounting in her family to kind of give her some insight on on that course of study. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's perfect. And we only have a few seconds left in this segment. So um, 
So I'll end it there. But Joy, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sally. I had a great time chatting with you. Me too. All right. So everyone, we're going to take a short break. But when we get back, I'll be speaking with Mary Sue Yoon about SAT subject tests. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, now we'll be speaking with Mary Sue Yoon about SAT subject tests. Welcome, Mary Sue. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me today. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. So let's talk about what, let's start with uh, what are subject tests? But I think before we get into whether students need them, not everybody even knows what they are. So let's start there. Yes. So subject tests sometimes are kind of the forgotten testing or one that um, a lot of families don't know about as much because they're not talked about quite as much. Um, But subject tests are generally one-hour exams that are in a specific academic subject. Um, for the parents out there, you might have thought of these as being called achievement tests, um, uh, let's say a little while ago, a few decades ago, <laughs> um, or uh, sometimes they're called SAT2s or subject tests. They're referred to by a few different um, names, but basically they're one-hour exams in specific academic subject areas like English or history, and more specifically, there's a U.S. history, a world history, um, chemistry, uh, biology, so they're um, the subjects that students would generally take in the school uh, year. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so they're only an hour long. So one of the things I really want to clarify here is that I think sometimes people think they can take them on the same day as the SAT reasoning exam. And I just want to be very clear that you cannot. They are only an hour, but they happen at the same time. So Right. They are administered at the same time. And you can take up to three of them on one test date. Um, But you can't take them on the same day that you were planning on taking a general SAT. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually recommend that students don't take more than two unless they're really in a crunch for some reason. Right. Um, I, I do think that students can handle two pretty well before they get overly fatigued. Um, but mm-hmm. obviously that'll vary from student to student. What do you tell your students? Yeah, I think that's a good piece of advice as well. If you can spread them out and not take them all at once, um, then try and do that. But, you know, there are some students that are a little more crunched for time with application deadlines looming, and so they they do have to be in the situation to take multiple. Um, But if you can spread them out and take no more than two at a time, then I think you will be um, better able to prepare for those specific exams. Mm -hmm. All right, so now let's talk about which colleges, like who needs to take them, because the fact is very few colleges actually require them. So which which students need to think about taking them? Right. So um, it's actually, it's a little misleading if you look on the the College Board website, who obviously they would like to uh, have more students sign up for their tests and have more students taking their tests. But I was just looking at their site earlier today, um, and they have a listing of colleges which consider the subject test, which that term consider is important because it seems like it's a very long list. It's got a few hundred schools on it. Um, And it might seem like any student applying to any of those schools would actually be required to take subject tests. And that's not the case. And there's a range of selectivity on that college board list. Um, So the schools that generally require them tend to be a very small subsection of the most highly selective schools. A number of the Ivy League schools do require them. Um, places like Stanford, um, sometimes uh, certain for certain programs in the University of California system, which we'll talk about in a second, um, but they might require them particularly for um, things like, you know, their engineering programs. Um, Georgetown University in D.C. requires three of them, which is kind of unusual. Um, most schools that require them are only going to require two, though. So it's a pretty small subsection. I would say only a, a couple dozen schools, you know, probably less than 30 schools, would actually require their applicants to take the subject test and present them in the application. Mm-hmm. So given the names of the schools that you mentioned, I mean, those tend to be pretty selective schools. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're really the schools at sort of the top level tier of selectivity. So in general, would you say it's only students who are gunning for those schools who need to take them? Are there exceptions to that? Uh, in general, yes. The students who are looking at those highly selective schools, if you're, you know, a mostly A student in high school, you might be looking at um, some of those highly selective schools and, and you might be thinking about that. Um, then then those might be the students who uh, might want to prepare for subject tests. But the vast majority of families listening to us today um, will not have to do the subject test. And that's kind of good news that that's one last test that you might have to prepare for. Um, but, you know, for that small subject section of students who are looking at those highly selective schools, they may have to take out them. Um, also, certain schools, uh, sort of apart from that, might require them for, for example, their engineering programs. So um, it may not be that the typical applicant has to take uh, the subject test, but a student applying um, to the engineering track might have to take a math and a science subject test, for example. But you want to check with the specific uh, requirements for each school that you're applying to. But I would say the general rule of thumb is most students won't have to deal with them at all. Um, those looking at highly selective schools might have to, and then potentially those looking for, for engineering programs might have to take those subject tests in, in certain situations as well. Mm-hmm. So what if what if you're a ninth or a tenth grader and you don't know yet where you'll be applying? Are there situations in which you might still want to take a subject test? So um, the subject tests are offered in 21 different subjects. A lot of those 21 subjects are um, actually subjects relating to foreign languages. Um, but there are a few different science tests that a student can take. There's chemistry tests, a physics test, um, and two types of biology tests. And so sometimes a student might be taking uh, a science test uh, perhaps a little earlier on in their high school career. So if you are a really strong science student, maybe you've just finished in 10th grade an honors level chemistry class, there's a possibility that you may not be taking chemistry again during your high school years. You, you might go on to an AP chemistry, second year chemistry class, um, but you might not. And so 
Um, it might be in your best interest if you think there's any possibility that you might be looking at those more highly selective schools or an engineering kind of program um, to take a chemistry exam at the end of 10th grade, at the end of that honors chemistry class, as opposed to waiting until sometime in 11th grade when you've perhaps moved on to physics um, or another science and you've kind of forgotten some of the chemistry pieces that would have been tested on that subject test. So... In those kind of situations, sometimes I do recommend that a ninth or a tenth grader might take a test really early, um, or a student who is perhaps very advanced in math. Um, maybe they're, you know, a super advanced math student and they're uh, taking calculus in, you know, tenth grade or something like that. Um, that might be a student to just kind of get one of the subject tests in math out of the way um, before um, they kind of move on to even more advanced math. The math actually has two different types of subject tests. There's a math one and math two. Um, math one is through algebra two level math. Um, so a lot of students will complete those, the, those math requirements or that math core work, you know, sort of 10th grade kind of time frame, ninth or 10th grade in some cases. Um, and the math too does include some pre-calculus and trigonometry kind of questions. So uh, a student who's an advanced math student might be completing that in kind of 10th or 11th grade in some situations. And so um, the student just wants to make sure that they are taking the subject test at a time when it's appropriate that they've covered that course content in their classwork uh, so that it's not that they have to go back and study things that they had studied a year or two previously and, and spend the time doing that. Just, just take it when you finish the course. Um, so in those kind of situations, I would say sometimes take it earlier, but I would also stress that more subject testing does not equal sort of more bonus points in the admissions process. Uh, I've definitely worked with students who are looking at the requirements and they're saying, oh, well, if a college only requires two or three subject tests, then if I show them, you know, if I take seven subject tests or eight subject tests, then that'll be better. And that's not the way that an admissions office really looked at it. So um, certainly if uh, you may be thinking about taking a couple of them, yes, you could take them a little earlier on if that's appropriate to you, but don't feel the need to take a subject test in every single core subject matter um, that you take in high school. That's not actually um, helping your application in any substantial way uh, in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Is there anyone else who might need to take a subject test? I mean, I'm thinking about um, when I worked at the University of Chicago or Reed College, when we got homeschool students it was often mm-hmm. pretty helpful to have subject mm-hmm. tests. Was that your experience as well? It was, yes. And so um, sometimes um, homeschooled applicants, they might want to just check in with the admissions offices at the schools that they're looking at just to make sure um, that the college might uh, want additional subject testing results. Sometimes in those cases, they would also take AP exam results as another measure, but but depending on how the family has decided to design that student's homeschooling, um, if it is mostly an in-home curriculum where there's not a lot of external testing or external um, validation from an online curriculum or something like that, then sometimes having the subject tests or the AP scores for homeschool, additional AP scores or, or subject test scores um, from a homeschooled applicant might be helpful because it can be a way to kind of validate that the student has studied that course content material. It's kind of like almost like a, a final exam in that subject for the for that type of student. Um, and the colleges might appreciate that information because it shows that you've learned the material and it's been validated by this national standardized test. Um, so it's not always going to be the case where homeschooled applicants would need that, but I would say it's it's worth checking in um, with the application reader who deals with homeschooled students in each application in, in each admissions office where you might be applying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I just want to quickly mention, we have to sign out now to get ready for the next segment, but I, I think it's worth it to quickly mention that if you're looking at some of the um, United Kingdom schools, you know, England, mm-hmm. Scotland, etc., um, they love it when students have AP exams, but if you don't, if you're not in an AP class, 
that's okay. You can do SAT subject tests. And I've actually gone on the website of schools like University of Edinburgh, St. Andrews, and they're very explicit about what kind of test scores they want from um, students from like the United States. So just that kind of last little bit. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. Thanks so much, Mary Sue. Um, we're going to take a short break, but first I wanted to do a college spotlight. I wanted to quickly tell our listeners about Hamilton College. Um, it's a small college in Clinton, New York, and Hamilton students believe in studying what they love and being who they are. Um, these are two reasons why bright, creative, and ambitious students choose Hamilton, a down-to-earth liberal arts college in central New York. One of a handful of selective colleges without distribution requirements, so if you like kind of the brown model, no distribution, no gen ed, um, Hamilton fosters a lifetime love of learning by encouraging its slightly less than 2,000 students to really design their own academic pathway. Um, You know, they can choose from a range of liberal arts and science majors, including some less usual ones like geoarchaeology, jurisprudence, law and justice studies, and world politics. Uh, But there's also a really big emphasis on developing strong written and public speaking skills, which, as we heard from our first segment, is important for all students. Um, And plenty of um, there's plenty of support for Hamilton students as they tackle the writing intensive courses. Um, Also, I know that a lot of students get concerned, like, how am I going to get a job or an internship if I'm in a small town um, or a quaint little village? Um, In addition to all their their many study abroad programs, they also feature popular domestic study study abroad options in New York City and Washington, D.C., which um, combines academic seminars with relevant internships. Approximately two-thirds of students do participate in some kind of study abroad, so you know that it is encouraged and um, really supported there. Um, Also, a great thing about Hamilton, it's one of the few colleges to be both need-blind in the application process, meaning they don't pay any attention at all to whether you are applying for aid when they decide whether to admit you, and they, but they also guarantee that first-year domestic students receive 100% of their demonstrated need in financial aid. So, pretty great. All right, so when we get back, Lori Peltier will be discussing how financial aid works at the Ivy, so stick around. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you ever given any thought to what is behind your insurance coverage? Many of us don't think of it as more than that premium you pay on a regular basis. Of course, until you actually need to use it. On CYA with Rhonda, you'll learn to cover your assets and find out what all of that insurance mumbo jumbo really means. If you're looking for a lucrative career option, Rhonda Lukey will explain how to get into the insurance business. Listen live every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Lori Piltier will be discussing how financial aid works at the Ivies. Welcome, Lori. Hi, Sally. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. So, all right. So why is financial aid at the Ivies different than other colleges? Well, and just as a caveat, I just want to say up front, I have not worked in the financial aid office at an Ivy League school, um, but it's always been uh, an interest of mine to kind of figure out how they offer their aid. And so uh, here at College Coach, we've done some research, put together some statistics and things like that so that we can better understand what happens when a family applies for aid at an Ivy. The reason why it's different than other colleges is because these colleges have been around for a long time. Harvard was incorporated in, what, 1650? And they've been, you know, rolling money for, for a long time. They have a lot of wealthy alumni who donate to their endowment. Their endowment is basically a growing investment that they use to maintain and grow the school and to give out financial aid. Younger colleges that might have only been around for 50 or 100 years, it takes a long time to build up that endowment and a lot of people that you have to ask for money. So um, they've had at the Ivy Leagues for many years, only wealthy students were able to go to the Ivy Leagues. Um, so they didn't use a lot of their financial aid that they were uh, saving up in their endowment. Uh, now they're being a lot more generous with it and they're getting a more diverse population. The other thing with the Ivy League colleges is that they have an agreement amongst themselves. They started in 1954 to not compete based on athletic aid. So uh, none of the schools in the Ivy Leagues um, offer athletic-based uh, aid, only need-based aid. They don't want price to be a deterrent, so they offer generous financial aid packages. Getting in is still the hardest part of the Ivy League process. Mm-hmm. So once you're in, if you have any need at all, it's likely to be relatively generous. Correct. 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 Okay. All right. So how is it different from other colleges? Well, there's several um, policies that the Ivy Leagues have across the board that many other colleges just can't afford to do. So number one of that is that they offer 100% of your financial need. There's no gapping. So what that means is if you apply for financial aid and there's um, the college thinks you can only afford um, $20,000, but their price tag is $70,000, they're going to give you that difference, that $50,000 need uh, in, in your financial aid package. There's very few schools today that can guarantee that 100% of your financial need is met for every student. They might do it for some students, the, the more desirable students, but they can't do it for every student across the board. Uh, secondly, the Ivy Leagues do not offer merit, so that's different. They're in a category of their own there um, where your financial aid application determines how much money you're going to get, not your admissions application. It's a totally separate process. They also do what's called 100% verification, so they ask for the parents' tax returns and other um, identifying documents so that they can verify every penny that you're reporting so that they're accurate in their offer. Uh, not all schools have the staff or the time to verify 100% of their financial aid files. All of the Ivy Leagues require uh, more than one financial aid application, uh, and some of them require three uh, financial aid applications in order to qualify. And even in a divorced or separated situation, uh, both parents' income is required. You typically don't find that at some of the uh, public schools and some of the private schools. They only look at the parent the child lives with the most, but at the Ivy Leagues, they look at both parents. And they are need-blind. All the Ivy Leagues uh, publish that they are need-blind. I could spend a whole day talking about what that means, but basically um, your financial aid application will not affect the admission decision. 
They keep it totally separate. If you need money, you need money. It's not going to affect your, your admissions decision. Uh, mm-hmm. So they don't look at that at all. And then all of the Ivy League schools have similar deadline dates when you're applying, uh, November 1st for early action and uh, February 1st for regular admission. Uh, they only have those two types of admission, so you either have to get all of your financial aid stuff in for November 1st if you're doing uh, early decision or um, February 1st for regular. And then um, some of the other highly selective colleges, uh, Bates, Duke, Stanford, they have similar policies, and some, co- um, some colleges have policies like this for some of their students, but the Ivy Leagues have these policies across the board for all the students all the time. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what makes them different than the other schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I worked at University of Chicago, I just want to put in another plug for Need Blind. Really, when a school says they're need blind, they are. I mean, when I worked at the University of Chicago, if you needed aid, that played zero, truly zero role in whether you were admitted or not. It did not come up in committee. It did not come up when I was talking to the dean about a candidate. It it wasn't something I wrote down on my sheet. It just wasn't relevant to the decision. So I really want students who need the money to apply for it when they're applying to the Ivies. I just can't stress that enough. Um, Yeah, yeah. So um, I think you kind of touched on this, but so it sounds like all Ivies package aid the same way. There's a few discrepancies, such as University of Pennsylvania requires three applications, whereas all the other uh, schools only require two. Um, Harvard and Princeton do not include home equity value in their calculation, and um, Harvard and Princeton also have their own calculation that looks at a percentage of family income up to a certain threshold. So, and they publish it on their website, a chart of if your income is this, then we expect this much of your um, income to go towards college. Most of the colleges in the Ivy League have a threshold where if a family's income is 65000 or less, the family will pay zero. The school will cover 100%. And then only Cornell and Dartmouth package loans as part of their financial aid offer. Um, Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but they're the only ones that don't across the board say that there's no loans. All the other ones have a policy where they do not package student loans. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty spectacular as well um, for students. Yeah. Um, So what different awards might someone receive in an Ivy League versus like a a school that's a a tier down in terms of selectivity? that offers merit or maybe an in-state public? It's interesting to see the differences. When my son was in sixth grade, he kept mentioning that he wanted to go to Harvard. So out of curiosity, I ran the numbers. um, And based on our income and family size at the time, it would have cost us a lot less to go to Harvard than it would have gone to go to UMass Amherst, our in-state public university. So it's funny how, you know, a very expensive, prestigious school can end up costing less than your in-state public if you qualify for need-based aid. So some students qualify for more aid at an Ivy League because of the underlying calculation of what the family's need is. Uh, They do not look so strongly at home equity. They fill your aid with grants and not loans. Uh, So an Ivy League can often come out to be the cheapest. However, for families with higher incomes, say around $250,000 or higher if they have one child in college, the Ivy League may still be the most expensive because they could get merit aid at a less selective school. And I think I tell families all the time, you need to be prepared that, you know, this school that's on your challenging list, this school that, you, you know, you're dreaming about and hoping to get to, are you prepared to pay to go there when you might get a lot of great offers from other schools that just don't have that selectivity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll give an example of a student of mine who got a, basically a full scholarship to Bucknell. Um, her family was in the very fortunate position of not having to worry about money, so she instead went to Dartmouth, but she turned down a lot of money. <laughs> it was very significant. So for another student, the wiser choice might have been Bucknell. Um, right. Yeah. So what happens if a student wins a scholarship from an outside source? Uh, that's a good question because, uh, you know, a lot of these students who can 
get accepted at an Ivy League, they have a lot of great qualifications and often do win outside scholarships, either from their hometown or, you know, their parents' employer or through their high school guidance office um, or in doing a ner- national search for scholarships. And these outside scholarships can be, you know, 500 to 5000 to $10,000. They do need to notify the school that this outside money is coming in and it will affect a package at an Ivy League school. Because at the Ivy Leagues, they're giving you 100% of your financial need with their award, so there's no room for that outside scholarship to come in. So uh, what the Ivy League schools will do is they will reduce what they call your self-help, so your, your student loan, if you have one, or your work-study award will be reduced or taken away so you can fit in this outside scholarship money. If you've already reduced your self-help and there's still um, too large of a scholarship to fit, they would reduce the grants that the school is offering. In the long run, the student still ends up with a better package because they have more free money and less loans and work study. Uh, so I do always encourage students to try to find those outside scholarships, but the dollar amount might stay the same. It's just the type of aid would change. Mm-hmm. Well, and you don't, you know, if work study goes away, you can usually find a job that isn't dependent on work study money. So, um, you know, as someone, as someone who had jobs that were both work study and non work study, <laughs> I know that that hasn't changed. So, all right. So one last question, how can I forecast how much I would receive? How much could a student, um, how much can I forecast how much I would receive if I was accepted to an Ivy League school? They, uh, a family can use a net price calculator to determine what they would get for financial aid. And it's actually the Ivy League schools who started doing this first before it became mandatory for every school in the country to have a net, a net price calculator on their website. Um, so they were afraid the Ivy League schools were noticing that there weren't a lot of lower-income families applying for admission because they just saw the sticker price and freaked out and went the other way. So they created these net price calculators on their websites to show you, you know, with just a few pieces of data, your family size, your income, your assets, the number in college, they will predict for you, if you got accepted, how much aid you would get so you could see that it is, um, you know, doable for that family. So I would definitely, if you're considering the Ivy League schools and you're worried about the cost, go to whichever school you're interested in's website, look for net price calculator. It's right there on their financial aid pages and uh, fill in the data and see what comes up. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks so much, Lori. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you to all of my guests today. Now, I want to tell you about our show next week, hosted by my colleague, Ian Fisher. He and his guests will be discussing study abroad programs you take in your first year in college and why they might be a good idea, as well as answering listener questions with a college finance consultant. So, by the way, be sure to put in your questions. You can use our Facebook page. That's just one good way to do it. Um, Finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows with varied varied topics, such as last week's show in which we discussed using LinkedIn during your college search. Didn't exist when I was doing my college search among men. Um, Also creating a common application account and a look inside the financial aid office at a community college. And if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time and it's absolutely free. And last, do not forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time, 1 p.m. Pacific time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.